Early one morning in March of 1699, William Chaloner gazed out his small window and pondered the impossible path his life had taken. From the squalor of his small village in central England to a grand home in the middle of London. There, he surrounded himself with luxury, handsome upholstered furnishings and brilliant silver-plated service. This is what a man does when he finds himself literally surrounded with tens of thousands of pounds, millions of today's dollars. He becomes a king of his own making. The money, however, was counterfeit. And Chaloner, too, was a fake. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today, we're beginning the story of William Chaloner, England's most prolific counterfeiter of the 17th century. Chaloner schemed his way across London, making and losing small fortunes until he tired of the cycle and set his sights on England's Royal Mint, a target that would put Chaloner in the crosshairs of its warden, Isaac Newton. Next week, we'll follow William Chaloner as he struggles to slip past Newton's investigation into his crimes and his subsequent sensational trial. For years, Chaloner engaged Newton in a thrilling game of cat and mouse, an act of hubris that would ultimately cost him his life. With an artist's eye, a craftsman's hand, and the dark heart of a criminal, William Chaloner quite literally made his fortune through forgery and deception. Chaloner operated as a skilled counterfeiter and imposter in 17th century England, where he produced millions of pounds worth of false coins. His prolific crimes and his public feud with physicist and astronomer Sir Isaac Newton made him possibly the most infamous con artist of the era. But before he was the man who went head-to-head -head with one of history's greatest minds, Chaloner was a poor boy struggling to create a foothold in a harsh world. Born in the late 1650s, William Chaloner entered an era that was both fraught with hardship and teeming with innovation. In the 17th century, Many villagers lived in small huts and could expect to live only 35 years on average. The plague had ravaged England three times in less than a century, 
leaving much of the population dead before the age of 16. But as the poor died on the streets and in the countryside, England's wealthy citizens enjoyed the many innovations of the era. Stagecoaches began ferrying the rich between towns, while the streets of London were lit for the first time by oil lamps. But young William Chaloner lived a life far from the luxuries of London. Though little is known about his early background, according to author Thomas Levinson in his book Newton and the Counterfeiter, Chaloner was born in the impoverished village of Warwickshire. As the son of a destitute weaver, Chaloner had no formal education and generally few opportunities to pull himself from the poverty he'd been born into. But even as a child, it was clear that a legitimate avenue of success wouldn't be an option for Chaloner. At an early age, he demonstrated a tendency to reject authority in favor of engaging in what his biographer Guzman Redivivus described as some unlucky rogue's trick or other. And so, with few opportunities in their home village for their unruly son, Chaloner's parents sent him away to apprentice for a blacksmith in nearby Birmingham. There, he worked in nail-making, a low-skilled and poorly paid trade. But Chaloner was learning to make far more than just nails. Soon, he became a quick study in a far more lucrative craft, counterfeiting. At the time, Birmingham was famous for the manufacturing of counterfeit coins. During his apprenticeship, young Chaloner cut his teeth by practicing to create false groats. These were a crude coin that consisted of heavily diluted silver, a detail which made them ideal for forging completely non-silver versions. Though it wasn't the respectable and legal trade his parents had hoped he'd learn as an apprentice, Chaloner had found his craft. He had an innate talent for counterfeiting. And so, sometime in the early 1680s, like many young men in their 20s, he made his way to London to make his fortune. But once he arrived, Chaloner found the booming capital far more difficult to navigate than he anticipated. The city was vast and overwhelming, and at the time, its population of half a million dwarfed the size of any village Chaloner had ever lived in. In a city overrun by people, conditions were horrible. As he traveled into the capital, Chaloner would have seen small mountains of human waste on the outskirts of town, where they were carted and dumped daily. And in London itself, the drinking water was foul and the air was difficult to breathe. It became clear to Chaloner that he had no option. He would have to pull himself out of poverty or else suffer the life of a lowly city dweller, damned to live on the filthy streets of a disease-ridden city. Once he arrived, he pursued work as a metal worker, only to learn that finding a position was nearly impossible. London's local blacksmith guilds had extremely restrictive policies which kept long-time laborers in business, but made it difficult for newcomers to compete. No matter how talented he was at metalworking, 
he would starve before he found work. And so, with no option to pursue the only skill he knew, Chaloner turned to crime. London's criminal underworld was riddled with street thugs, pickpockets, and shoplifters. And while Chaloner lacked the toughness of a gang member or the nimble fingers of a pickpocket, he did have a silver tongue and a remarkable ability to improvise. For the next 10 years, Chaloner was a professional imposter. Whether a doctor, a psychic, or alchemist, Chaloner could assume whatever identity would ensure he'd get paid. And at a time when the city was rife with desperation, many Londoners were happy to give their money to a man who offered the skills of a professional at a cheaper price. But in between his stints as a false physician or fortune teller, Chaloner wasn't above street peddling. His wares included a variety of questionable items, including pornography and tin watches which contained dildos. This street hustling earned Chaloner a respectable wage, and eventually, though little is known about her, Chaloner even met and married his first wife. But though he had managed to carve a life out for himself in the city, Chaloner wasn't satisfied with his small-time cons. Soon, he developed an entirely new scam. He claimed, perhaps via clairvoyant abilities, that he could locate stolen goods. But in reality, Chaloner only found the items by collaborating with a network of thieves who'd taken them in the first place. It was a well-paying racket for a time, until it all came tumbling down. Around 1690, Chaloner got word that local law enforcement was investigating his involvement. And so, he fled the city for the slums of Hatton Garden before he could be arrested and abandoned his wife in the process. This casual desertion or betrayal of those closest to him was a habit Chaloner would repeat many times without remorse. It seems the con man lacked both a sense of loyalty and empathy, a trait that may be traced to his parents' abandonment when he was sent away to apprentice at a young age. According to a 2007 study by psychologist and trauma specialist Terry L. Messman-Moore and psychologist Aubrey A. Coates, childhood abandonment often results in social isolation. Chaloner exhibited both of these traits personally and professionally. Though he would have a number of romantic partners and criminal accomplices, he kept no one's company for long if it meant any amount of self-sacrifice, a habit that was no doubt born from his need to survive on his own from a young age. Chaloner proved over time that he would gladly exchange the life or well-being of someone else to save his own neck. Unceremoniously abandoning his wife was just the first of his many betrayals. But fleeing his old life in the face of arrest meant that Chaloner had to begin again. Now that he was wanted by the law, it wasn't safe for him to continue his street corner scams. He needed something more covert. Later that same year, in 1690, Chaloner, now in his 30s, met a Japaner in his Hatton Garden tenement and paid him to teach him the trade. 
A traditional japanner was someone who varnished old surfaces to make them appear new. This included any kind of refinishing, including wood and metal. But it was the metal that interested Chaloner. Soon, Chaloner applied what he learned from the japanner and used it for gilding, the process of applying a new, thin coat to a metal surface. Using his skills in metalworking, he began gilding silver pieces with tiny applications of gold, passing them as coins of higher value. William Chaloner returned to the scam that had started his entire conning career, counterfeiting. It was the perfect solution, discreet, accessible, and lucrative. There was just one problem. It was punishable by death. Coming up, William Chaloner risks death in a bid to become England's most prolific counterfeiter. Now, back to the story. By 1690, now in his 30s, William Chaloner carved out a place for himself in London's criminal underworld. In less than a decade, he'd evolved from destitute blacksmith's apprentice to imposter and street peddler to, finally, counterfeiter. And his timing couldn't have been better. In the late 1600s, counterfeit currency was rampant in England. The rising price of rare metals meant that most coins were actually worth less at face value than their materials. And so they were either frequently melted down and removed from circulation, or the circumference of a coin was shaved down in a practice called clipping. Over time, English currency began to rapidly depreciate so much that the coins themselves weren't actually worth the values they'd been assigned, and the creation of well-crafted fakes only drove them down further. At the time, as much as 10% of all coins in circulation were estimated to be counterfeit. Although it might seem that half of England was engaged in currency fraud, counterfeiting was neither easy nor without risk. In fact, the Crown took the crime so seriously that counterfeiting was considered treason, punishable by hanging or burning. The stakes couldn't have been higher, and for Chaloner, there was no room for error while he honed his skills. He needed the help of a true professional. Soon, Chaloner recruited the expertise of a local goldsmith named Patrick Coffey. Coffey was impressed with Chaloner's quest for a perfect fake, and the two men quickly struck up a partnership. Coffey mentored Chaloner in various counterfeiting techniques. He learned how to prepare metal plates for engraving blank currency, and how to use molds to imitate a coin's milled edging. But Coffey wasn't Chaloner's only accomplice. Counterfeiting required a team of men who assisted in acquiring materials and the physical labor of pressing coins. Their most notable compatriot was Thomas Holloway. Holloway and his wife Elizabeth helped pass the coins into circulation, selling them to petty crooks for shillings on the pound. So with their motley crew of counterfeiters assembled, Chaloner and Coffey 
began churning out thousands of pistoles and gilded guineas from 1690 to 1691. For nearly two years, business boomed as their coins blanketed the country. And for good reason. Chaloner's handiwork was near perfect and passed easily through the populace. In less than a decade, Chaloner had counterfeited as much as £30,000 worth of currency, more than $4 million by today's standards. He quickly became one of the most successful forgers in England, and Chaloner was more than happy to reap the rewards of his success. He took a mistress and moved back to London, where he bought a grand house in the wealthy Knightsbridge district. There, after years of lying low, Chaloner assumed the role of a well-to-do gentleman and began integrating himself into high society. But Chaloner's very visible wealth was risky. Law enforcement had begun to crack down on counterfeiters, resulting in routine hangings. A new man seemed to swing at the gallows every week, but Chaloner was undeterred. For two years, he'd managed to evade the punishment, a lifetime in the business of counterfeiting, and he was only emboldened by his success. This boldness, paired with Chaloner's belief that he could act with impunity, are traits commonly found in individuals with narcissistic personality disorder. According to psychologist Betty Glad of the University of South Carolina, there's a clear correlation between delusions of grandeur and a person's perceived immunity to the law, or even death. Glad described that many times these individuals view their brushes with disasters only as confirmation that they are invincible, rather than warnings that they may be tempting fate. And according to his biographer Guzman Redivivus, Chaloner was no different. Each time he outran justice, it only furthered his belief that he was beyond the law. Chaloner himself once declared, none but poor fellows and fools were hanged. And unfortunately for Chaloner's accomplices, he'd soon prove himself correct. In 1692, Less than three years after Chaloner started his counterfeiting ring, one of his henchmen, William Blackford, was apprehended for passing counterfeit guineas. Once he was convicted, the authorities made him a deal. Avoid the gallows in exchange for the name of the man behind the counterfeit coins. And Blackford was more than happy to save his neck. Once Chaloner heard that Blackford was testifying, he began forging as many counterfeit coins as he could over the next two days. Then he hid his dies and other equipment with Thomas Holloway and disappeared. For the next five months, Blackford begged to testify against Chaloner to spare his own life. But as long as the con man was missing, his plea deal was moot. So in late 1692, Blackford was hanged. With his accuser good and dead, Chaloner returned to England in 1693. 
But after Blackford's betrayal, he decided that counterfeiting had gotten him too close to the gallows for comfort. Now he was determined to make his fortune through other, less dangerous cons. Just five years earlier, in 1688, King James II was deposed and forced into exile, while his daughter, Mary, and her husband, William, assumed the throne. At the time, supporters of King James, called Jacobites, were declared criminals and had bounties placed on their heads. Anyone who turned a Jacobite into the crown received a handsome reward. Chaloner had finally found a legal opportunity for a quick buck. Soon after returning to England, he asked four reluctant Jacobite sympathizers to print copies of James II's declaration denouncing King William. Distribution of the declaration was considered treason, punishable by hanging. But Chaloner's silver tongue won his victims over. Through a combination of offers for compensation and threats of blackmail, Chaloner managed to persuade two of the Jacobites to put their lives at risk. And to sweeten the deal, he promised them a celebratory dinner as soon as they delivered the copies of the declaration he'd ordered. But when the conspirators arrived at the tavern in Haymarket that Chaloner had arranged, copies in hand, they were surprised to see there was no feast. Only the police were waiting for them. William Chaloner had led them into a trap. And shortly after, the Jacobites were executed. In return, Chaloner received a thousand-pound reward, a handsome sum, roughly 20 times the annual salary of a laborer. And Chaloner took it without remorse. But eventually, Chaloner wasn't satisfied with just bringing authorities a few unlucky Jacobites. His short time as a government informant had opened his eyes to an entirely new kind of con. Or rather, a new kind of target. England itself. By 1694, rampant counterfeiting had England's economy on the verge of collapse, an issue that Chaloner himself had a hand in. But now he saw a new opportunity. He could work for the other side. So Chaloner assumed one of his greatest identities in his career as an imposter. He took on the role of an anti-counterfeit expert. That year, he circulated pamphlets denouncing the state of the Royal Mint while offering corrective measures. One was titled, Proposals Humbly Offered for Passing an Act to Prevent Clipping and Counterfeiting of Money. Chaloner offered detailed solutions to thwart counterfeiting, including restricting access to tools needed for coining and minting underweight coins that would make clipping unprofitable. They were brilliant yet comprehensive plans that would actually work. As his writings received more and more attention, no one guessed that the anti-counterfeit expert was a past forger himself. But for Chaloner, the goal wasn't to simply give the Royal Mint free tips on how to crack down on counterfeiting. His objective was to create a persona of expertise that would hopefully secure him a cushy government position. He wanted to con his way 
into a legitimate job. When the Mint declined to act on his proposals, Chaloner found an unlikely ally in the Earl of Monmouth, Charles Mordaunt. A former Lord of the Treasury, Mordaunt arranged for Chaloner to address the Privy Council, a formal body of advisers to the King. Chaloner no doubt reveled in this irony. There he was, England's top counterfeiter, responsible for much of the country's currency issues, disguised as an anti-fraud expert, advising a royal body on how to thwart forgery. And so he regaled these men with his expertise about the mechanics of coin-making. But then Chaloner pushed the envelope. He accused the officials at the Royal Mint of corruption at every level. This false accusation wasn't purely a whim. It was a move to position himself as an officer who could help solve the problem. And though the advisers didn't offer him a job on the spot, they did take his testimony seriously. Soon after, they launched an investigation into the officials at the Mint. Chaloner was giddy from his success. Though he didn't receive a position at the Mint yet, he was confident he'd secure one by the end of the sham investigation. There was just one problem. By accusing the Royal Mint of rampant corruption, Chaloner had put himself at odds with a certain brilliant adversary, the new Warden of the Mint, Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton, much like Chaloner, left home at an early age to pursue the opportunity for a life his family was unable to afford. But though their paths seemed parallel, where Chaloner chose less savory routes to success, Newton traveled the straight and narrow. At 12 years old, Newton was sent away to begin grammar school, and in 1661, at the age of 18, he joined Trinity College at Cambridge. There, he immersed himself in his studies and began developing many of his budding theories on astronomy and physics. But it wasn't until the publication of his masterwork, Principia, in 1687, that Newton would earn international acclaim. And only a few years later, around the time that Chaloner was at the height of his counterfeiting career, Newton was offered the warden's post at the Royal Mint. After years of their lives running parallel to each other, suddenly, Isaac Newton and William Chaloner's fates crossed. Chaloner's counterfeiting had unwittingly brought Newton to the Royal Mint to fix the problem Chaloner helped create. And so, as soon as he arrived at the Mint, 50-year-old Newton was faced with two immediate problems the deteriorating state of England's silver coinage and the flourishing underworld of counterfeiting. As the newly appointed protector of the nation's currency, Newton was tasked with investigating and prosecuting financial crimes against the crown. And though Newton didn't know it at the time, William Chaloner was public enemy number one. Coming up, Chaloner tries to weasel his way out of prosecution and into the Royal Mint. And now, back to our story. In 1693, 
William Chaloner reached the height of his counterfeiting career. In under three years, he'd mass-produced thousands of nearly perfect false coins, all the while cheating the gallows. But as Chaloner reveled in his newfound wealth, he'd inadvertently created his own greatest adversary, Isaac Newton. Newton had been offered the post as Warden of the Royal Mint in reaction to the rampant fraud Chaloner had helped perpetuate. But while Newton was tasked with undoing the damage Chaloner had done to England's currency, Chaloner was accusing the Royal Mint of committing fraud. Although Chaloner was barely a blip on Newton's radar, his accusations against the Mint were beginning to get under Newton's skin. After all, Newton was trying his best to keep the English economy from collapsing. Over the next five years, the Royal Mint created more than five million pounds of new coins. The process was dubbed the Great Recoinage of 1696. But in 1694, Newton had more to worry about than just the coins. Paper currency was now on the rise. That year, the Bank of England began issuing banknotes in return for deposits in an effort to raise money for war against France. But unlike coins, paper currency didn't require elaborate die stamp equipment or precious metals. The materials were cheap and the process was simple. It was a counterfeiter's dream. And soon, Chaloner couldn't resist he decided to come out from retirement and risk the gallows once again. But he had to be creative in this new counterfeiting. First, there was the problem of value. The most common banknotes were issued in £100 denominations, roughly twice the average annual income. Those large sums would have been impossible to pass among the working or middle class. And the second issue was technical. In an attempt to thwart counterfeiting, the banknotes were printed on marbled paper. But by this time, Chaloner's professional circle included a variety of craftsmen and other professional counterfeiters. He knew printers capable of duplicating the marbled backgrounds of banknotes and other skilled forgers to mimic the handwriting on every bill. And for two months, he passed his counterfeits undetected. But in the summer of 1695, Chaloner's luck changed. A forged note was discovered and traced to a printer who informed on Chaloner. After successfully evading prosecution for years, he'd been caught red-handed. And soon, he was arrested by agents of the Treasury. As soon as he faced prosecution, the conman employed the one method that worked so well for him in the past, throwing his accomplices under the bus. Chaloner immediately turned King's evidence, meaning he became an informer on behalf of his prosecutors, the Crown of England. He surrendered his paper stock and named other conspirators. And Chaloner was handsomely rewarded for his betrayal. Not only did the Crown erase his charges, the Bank of England gave Chaloner their formal thanks and 200 pounds. He was also allowed to keep all of the profits from his counterfeiting 
Once again, treachery paid, and Chaloner slipped back onto the streets. Almost no one was aware of his latest brush with the law. In a time before fingerprints, mugshots, and computer databases, neither the Royal Mint nor Newton himself were aware of Chaloner's latest run-in with the Treasury. So, with his charges cleared, Chaloner was free to continue playing the role of anti-counterfeiter expert and to pursue a coveted position within the Royal Mint. Nothing, even a near brush with death, was going to keep Chaloner from pursuing his schemes. With every narrow escape, it seemed he was only more convinced of his invincibility. Any close call with the law was just a bump in the road. According to Professor of Sociology Marlin Arkestrom, career criminals have a tendency to blame themselves for getting caught. And they commonly cite personal mistakes as the reason why. Very few criminals admit that they were apprehended because of the skills of the authorities. They believe that as long as they didn't slip up, they would have never been caught. In other words, when a criminal isn't apprehended, they view themselves as nearly uncatchable. And William Chaloner was no exception. In 1696, emboldened by his escape from the Treasury's clutches, Chaloner doubled down on his attempts to infiltrate the Royal Mint. Once again, he used false claims of fraud to ignite interest in his supposed anti-counterfeiting expertise. Chaloner petitioned Charles Montague, Chancellor of the Exchequer, with details of a new conspiracy at the Royal Mint. Montague took the bait. He immediately ordered an investigation. This time, Chaloner's scam had gone further than ever before. And if he was successful, he would be able to put himself inside the Mint with access to England's coin-making machinery and infrastructure. It was a counterfeiting pipe dream the ultimate con, and Chaloner could feel himself getting closer. Shortly after, he appeared before the Lord's Justices of Appeals to explain the details of his alleged conspiracy. But though there was no true conspiracy, Chaloner had a plan. He'd learned through his criminal grapevine that Isaac Newton had been investigating the disappearance of coining dyes from the mint. So Chaloner took that kernel of truth and ran with it. Before the court, he accused the Mint's chief engraver of selling official dyes to counterfeiters. But that wasn't all. He piled on false charges of corruption, even claiming that the Mint moneyers produced their own counterfeit guineas out of short-change silver. As Chaloner strutted across the court floor, pontificating these alleged crimes, the Lord's Justices listened, aghast. Then, to boost his credibility, Chaloner implicated his former partner, Patrick Coffey, and a Mr. Chandler, Chaloner's own coining pseudonym. Once again, Chaloner condemned his colleagues just to get ahead. Soon, the police arrested Patrick Coffey, but once he was in custody, Chaloner's testimony fell apart. 
Convicted counterfeiters Peter Cook and Thomas White implicated each other in accounts that did not match. In fact, they claimed William Chaloner was in possession of the missing dies. Meanwhile, Chief Engraver Scotch Robin testified that the dies had been stolen, not sold. In an effort to ingratiate himself, Chaloner had only opened a can of worms. So with the facts of the case hopelessly tangled, the committee turned to Isaac Newton and asked him to lead the investigation into Chaloner's claims. He immediately got to work. Newton's first point of order was to get Peter Cook and Thomas White to talk. With both facing execution, Newton offered them a pardon in exchange for cooperation. Cook immediately offered up three names to earn his pardon. White, meanwhile, took his time, slowly giving up his criminal cohorts after multiple interviews. Through the following August and September, Newton interviewed a half-dozen men and arrested 30 more, but none shed any light on Chaloner's accusations. And Newton interviewed Chaloner himself just once. Without the threat of a death sentence to persuade him, Newton had no leverage with Chaloner. And so they went round and round. Newton continued to press witnesses for any information on the alleged corruption, while Chaloner insisted that the theories were true and that he was entirely innocent. Newton had become an experienced interrogator during his time at the Mint. He was used to criminals folding quickly under pressure or lying, usually poorly, to save their necks. But Chaloner's sheer audacity was something he hadn't seen before. Newton didn't believe a word of Chaloner's conspiracy theories he knew he was lying, but he didn't have a shred of proof. With no clear evidence against him, Newton had no reason to hold Chaloner any longer. And so, the con man simply returned to the streets where he continued to spread his claims of government corruption. Chaloner had faced down the formidable warden of the Royal Mint and come away unscathed. He believed whatever new plot he hatched, he would have little to fear from Isaac Newton. But he had no idea the kind of enemy he'd made. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of William Chaloner's story. We'll hear how he manipulated the National Lottery, sparred with Isaac Newton in court, and even feigned madness to escape his fate. For more information on William Chaloner, amongst the many sources we used, we found Newton and the Counterfeiter by Thomas Levinson extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time.
Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Con Artist was written by Ken Bizzani, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden.